0: in both of those instances it was a woman who was the abductor and the woman woman needed to have a baby to keep her relationship going with her significant other she came from delaware she drove into north philly and she befriended a a woman who had a baby in a stroller offered to give her a ride and she well welcome
1: back everybody to cold red Uh, i'm ray carr and with me as always is Jimmy Fitz, Fitzgerald. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking a lot about school shootings, but there's something far worse that's constantly being overlooked and that's child abductions. As of 2023, about 8 million children are reported missing each year worldwide. 2,300 children are reported missing daily in the United States. In 2020, 400,000 youth were abducted in the United States. We have a special guest with us tonight, Kevin McShane. Kevin is a retired uh, supervisory special agent out of the Philadelphia FBI office and a former member of the child abduction response team. He's going to weigh in on this subject. Kevin, thanks for being part of our show, Jim and I really appreciate you. And believe it or not, Kevin, you are by you are our first guest, and we're an honored. Uh, for you to uh, to break the ice with us, uh, we really appreciate it. Kevin, why don't you start out by uh, telling our audience a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure, Ray, so I uh, like uh, Ray said, I did twenty two years with the FBI. I retired as a supervisory special agent. Uh, prior to that, I was a detective with the Baltimore County Police Department in Maryland for a little over seven years, so, Almost 30 years in law enforcement, and then uh, while I was in Philadelphia, uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, selected uh, to the Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team uh, back when it originally started. I was one of the founding members of that team.
1: Kev, what what the heck is, and and I guess they they called it CART, right? Am I right by that?
0: Yes, C-A-R-D-T, the Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team.
1: What exactly is that? What does that mean?
0: So what they found out is that there was not an across-the-board response to abducted children cases throughout the United States uh, it, from an FBI perspective. Some, divi- some larger divisions had more resources, and they could allocate them uh, to appropriately investigate those matters. So in an effort to, to fill that gap, uh, they created the Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team. And what that is, it consists of approximately 60 FBI agents that work uh, in conjunction with the Behavioral Analysis Unit down in Quantico. And they are regionalized. So when I was there, it was a the Northeast team, the Southeast team, a West team, North Central and South Central. So those agents that were selected for the team Fit in that geographical location, and uh, for for me, for the Northeast team, our uh, area of responsibility was from Maine down to West Virginia. So, if there was an abducted child or the mysterious disappearance of a child under the age of twelve, law enforcement would respond. They would get some initial facts, and they would reach out to the FBI office, and it would go through headquarters, and they would put out a deployment call, and they would send. Uh, say hey, we you know FBI Pittsburgh. Uh, there's a missing five-year-old. Who's available to respond? Who can get out there right away? And we would we would deploy with the behavioral analysis unit assets to go on location and start working with law enforcement on these types of cases.
2: Ray, let me give a little bit of a historical perspective here, because. Uh, I was in New York for seven years, as our uh, listeners and viewers will know. But in 1995, I was promoted to SSA, Supervisory Special Agent, into uh, the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. And they were advertising back then, meaning the bureau internally was uh, posting positions for uh, the, the traditional profiling unit, which was the Investigative Support Unit, and the brand new Child Abduction and Serial Killer Unit, Interesting how they put those two together in one unit. And Bill Hagmeyer was the unit chief of CASCUE for short. And, um, Kevin, you can tell us it was, that was 1995. I'm not sure. I think CART came a few years after that.
0: It did. I, I, I want to say 2005.
2: Oh, that late. Okay. But nonetheless, we had Cascu who would respond to... Um, well until they changed their names and we all bec- then they became bau3 i believe and they uh we kind of got away with cascu part of it and then we all had specialties in the in the profiling unit and then somewhere around that same time necmec was formed that's the national center for missing and exploited children and i think they came around with the famous Eton pates case in the late 70s in new york city he was the first kid to ever be put on a milk carton and he just vanished off his streets in a uh, off the street in lower Manhattan going to school one day, cute little six year old boy, never to be seen again. Finally, I think 25 years later, an arrest was made. So I want to give a little historical perspective here. And uh, Kevin, I thanks. Thank you for giving us the info that you did regarding your journey into uh, that particular unit.
1: Kevin, I wanted to ask you, um, I know you're, you're, uh, area responsibility was the northeast but was there ever a time when they would pluck you and put you in a different region because there wasn't enough uh agents that were responding to that to that uh, episode that was an incident that was occurring
0: uh yeah yes so in 2007 uh, i was sent uh actually to the west team um Due to it was the, it was summertime, and uh, the agents that were on the team were either on uh, vacation or they were in trial, and they were not able to get out. So I got on a plane in Philly and flew to uh, Phoenix, uh, and worked a, a, an interesting matter uh, that actually occurred on a, f- a federal uh, a national park. So the FBI automatically had jurisdiction in the matter. Um, the local agency that we worked with was the Yavapai County Sheriff's Office and uh, that case uh, obviously it was, it was a lot of these cases don't end the way you want them to. Uh, by that I mean we may recover a victim but the victim is deceased. Um, in this matter that was the case uh, they reported that the two-year-old boy 23 month old boy was uh was missing and what eventually the investigation uh, pointed out was that he uh, had taken some prescription narcotic medicine from his caretaker and the caretaker actually saw him take it caretaker didn't do anything to help the child and the the child ended up passing away. In order to hide their tracks, they disposed of his body in the national forest, um, the national park, and uh, what those kind of cases are called, Ray, are false allegation cases. So they're reporting that the child is actually missing, when in actuality the child's not missing. The child, the child's dead, had been murdered and murdered by either the parent or caretaker who's actually uh, providing that information to law enforcement. So in those types of cases, it's really hard because one, we, we're we behind the eight ball big time. Uh, as far as a the timeline, the, the parent or caregiver has concocted some sort of story, maybe even uh, presented some sort of alibi that needs to be run down. And they're really difficult cases to where, besides just being a child abduction, now you throw in the fact that the person who is calling law enforcement, who you would think would be responsible to provide as much information to law enforcement to recover the child, they're the ones that are actually responsible for the disappearance and death. So uh, to answer your question, yes, we did supplement each other's regions. You know, southeast would come to the northeast. Uh, northeast would go to the west. Um, it was uh, an all hands uh, scenario when when those types of cases happen. Right, everybody who whoever's available to go does go, and if they're not due to circumstances like being in trap or being in court or on vacation, then other resources are pulled from throughout the country to respond.
1: You know, Kev, I think it would be great. And I don't know if you can do this, but I know our listeners would love to know from soup to nuts what it's like and and how this whole how this whole incident begins. I mean, is there a complaint that comes in? If you could take us and walk us through maybe one case that you had that was memorable and kind of walk us through it, and then Jimmy and I can kind of come in and fill in some some spots that we have questions about, but I'd love to hear. How does this whole freaking process work? Like right from the beginning, you know, how did you get selected to be part of this team? Is there special training? What, what, what goes on with that?
0: So I I got selected um, and I don't know if it's a good thing, but uh, I had two, I had two stranger abduction infant kidnapping cases while, while a street agent in Philadelphia, Um, both of which were resolved successfully. Uh, the, the infants were recovered alive and, uh, I can go into a little bit of detail about that. And it just, it was the mindset of, uh, in both of those instances, it was a woman who was the abductor and the woman, woman needed to have a baby to keep her relationship going with her significant other. And, uh, the, the one incident that, uh, I think is the, is the most interesting part of the case that I had was, she came from Delaware. She drove into North Philly, and she befriended a, a woman who had a baby in a stroller. Offered to give her a ride. Uh, there was another guy driving the car, and she, the lady ended up saying yes. And as she went to grab the baby, uh, she put the baby in the car, and they basically sped away and literally abducted the infant. Uh, good thing there is we had eyewitnesses. It was daytime, on the street, broad daylight. Got a description of the car, uh, not a whole license plate, some uh, indicators of the tag. And in those types of instances, and Jim could, Fitz can probably talk more about that, like the mindset of the abductor. In those types of cases where it's an infant and the woman is the suspect, There's a greater chance that there's not going to be any harm to the child because she wants this child to be her own. You know what I mean? She's going to nurture and protect. Um, As the age of the victim goes up, the sex of the offender changes from female to male. And then there's a lot of times a sexual component introduced to that. Um, So in this particular instance, she did make a mistake. Obviously, she she got caught. later on that night, uh, down in, uh, Southern Delaware, worked with, uh, the state police and recovered, recovered the infant down there. But she was, um, an African-American woman whose boyfriend was African-American who was getting out of jail. And the mistake was she abducted a Hispanic baby. So even though he's going to get out of jail saying, Hey, I've got a baby now, but it doesn't look like me. So she had some more explaining to do to him uh, when he got out of jail. But bottom line is successfully uh, investigated. The offender was identified, the kid, reco- the baby recovered, and she went to federal prison. Um, so based upon having, and everybody that was on, that was selected for the CART team has instances or cases like that. So they worked kidnappings they work stranger abductions they work violent crimes against children matters so they already they're in that mindset and they they have the experience because I, i'll be honest with you when we would do training we've done training with 200 cops and detectives and when you ask them hey how many stranger abduction case? not not like dad not returning the the, the kid due to a child custody dispute i mean a legitimate like stranger abduction. How many times have you guys investigated that? And how many, Ray, how many hands do you think go up in the room at that time?
1: Probably one or two. Zero. Zero?
0: Yeah. So, which is a good thing that they're not working child abduction cases. That means that kids aren't getting abducted. However, they're not working child abduction cases, which puts them behind the eight ball because there's investigative strategies that uh that we utilize that help us come to a successful resolution on these cases so uh you, you're talking uh no exp- how do you how do you become a better homicide detective
1: well you, By you working you, homicide? well let me ask you this Kevin you know I threw a stat out and because I pulled a stat up here and in 2020 the beginning of the pandemic that whole year four hundred thousand young children were abducted in the United States. So what you're saying is that probably less than 1% of those
0: are stranger abductions. Is that fair? The stat that we would use that we work through through BAU is a legitimate stranger abduction is like less than one tenth of 1% of violent crime reported in the United States. Um, so it, it is, there's, And depending upon what statistic you look at, anywhere between 75 and 200.
1: Now, with that said, and with the increase in human trafficking that's occurring throughout the United States, especially along the border, do you think those numbers are going to go up?
0: I I think they will. I I absolutely think they will. Um, You know, those. uh, The the cases that when you get involved in and, and. As you guys know, these cases take the heart and soul. You know what I mean? Uh, You put everything that you can into trying to try and and recover a child alive and well, right? They're they're the most precious people in our society. And we need to do what we can to keep them safe. And I think uh, what you said earlier, Ray, about how did I get selected? So it was having that experience and then... Uh, initially, it was 60 of us uh, throughout the, in, in the entire United States. And then we, once we were selected, then we went through additional uh, specialized training, right? Um, and then every year, the CART team gets together for a conference. And we go over, I should say, we, we went over uh, all of the, the previous year's deployments. Uh, The the team leader would get up, do a presentation, who was on the, you know, describe the facts of the case. Uh, And and what I really appreciated on that, it was brutally honest, uh, the feedback, because not everything goes according to plan. Right. There's mistakes that are made and we we each learn and grow from them because each case is different. Each case has its own uh, anomalies that that uh make it specific to you, right? So by having this presentation, you tell everybody, hey, here's what I did. This is what worked. But I'll tell you what, I messed up doing this. I should have went down this road, but I didn't, you know, I, I should have done this one extra thing. So it's it's open communication, which I think makes the team grow and, and learn from from mistakes or gaps. And uh, it it fine tunes them so that hey if the, another team hey I remember that McShane gave that presentation on that case you know what he did this and it worked and I, you know this is kind of a similar situation so maybe I can use that technique or, or that go that you know, use that perspective to to assist me in my investigation so I really did enjoy the uh, the the conferences and you get a lot out of it like having case examples. Um, I think, brings it home from uh, from a learning perspective. You know, you can read about stuff and talk about it, but when you bring it home like, hey, this is the real deal, this is what happened, and you lay the facts out, I personally learn more from that than just, like, looking at a PowerPoint presentation, somebody reading off of it.
2: You know, there was an interesting trend in the 90s, Kevin, and you, uh, one of your cases there mentioned it. Uh, of, of women, th- these things seem to be cyclical sometimes and um, in different types of crime sprees. And of course, you know, life imitates art and what happens in the media, other people read about. But all around the U.S., there are women who they pretend they're pregnant with their boyfriends or their husbands. And in fact, uh, they realize at some point they have to deliver a kid. So there are kidnappings like the one you just mentioned in, in North Philadelphia you wound up going to Southern Delaware, but there were also women, again, in the 90s, remember a number of cases. I think one out of Doylestown Hospital, which is also Philly Division, or a hospital in that area, in which women would walk into the maternity wards and somehow finagle their way into the maternity ward itself, pick up a baby, and I'm the mother, I'll walk out I'm, I'm the aunt, I'm gonna give it to the mother. And and shortly after those type cases happened, um, the maternity ward, you go to a maternity ward nowadays. Nowadays, it's uh, it's almost like TSA is there. You're being you're being wanded and everything like that. The babies are you know have bands on them. But the other even more violent and more disturbing trend that's up to a few years ago. This happened. You guys probably know where I'm going. Is there be a woman like the one you've described driving around? Maybe they befriend someone. Maybe they just see someone. They stalk them. A woman who's pregnant get them alone. And this is going to be graphic here, folks. But I won't go overboard basically they knock them out and they make sure the baby you know she's like seventh eighth month of pregnancy they get a sharp knife and they cut the baby out of the woman cut the umbilical cord and that becomes their baby they come home to their boyfriend look at our little child and uh and you know sometimes the guy may know sometimes he doesn't um but that's his uh that's how that's what kind of mental um Mental abnormalities are at work here with some of these women in doing things like that. Don't get me wrong, guys do these things for sexual purposes with young kids. Women do it for some kind of a maternal need that for whatever reason, nature is not permitting them to provide an actual child so they steal one off someone else and uh and you've seen these uh, these trends over the years and uh, I think that w- wasn't there one in Doylestown. I remember reading about it, hospital that I think the baby was recovered.
1: yes, there was i I, I do remember that. I was out of Fort Washington. Yeah, Fort Washington handled that. Uh, the RV, resident agency for Washington. But Kevin, getting back to you, you know, they say rapid deployment. So when an abduction happens, how long does it take you to get boots on the ground
0: to wherever that may be? So uh, I will say for like the Northeast region, we were, we were, we could be there quickly because, uh, The agents that were in the Northeast team were stationed in the Boston division, the Albany division, the New Haven division, Philly division, Pittsburgh division, and North division. So, and the Northeast is not really, as you guys know, it's not that spread out. But you you start getting out to like Idaho and Montana, then your 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 response time, uh is escalated. It's longer. Whereas we, in the Northeast, we were lucky. We could, we would drive everywhere. You know what I mean? We don't have to get on a plane uh, to respond to, I could be in Boston in four and a half hours. You know what I mean? But we have an agent in Boston on the team. So strategically it it worked out that way. And that was part of the selection process is to make sure we have adequate, adequate coverage throughout like the Northeast, Southeast, West. Uh, where we could have agents respond to uh, an incident in a quick time, and, quick time. And period. Kevin,
2: may I ask you in the early days, how did this evolve? Because uh, a lot of these um, these um, specialty um, units, if you will, um, or teams, the agents didn't work them full time. They were assigned, they had regular cases there working, maybe on a white collar crime, could be a bank robbery crime. But when a missing kid came about, they left kind of those desks, those duties, and they responded. But at some point, then the divisions get full-time cart squads, so to speak. Tell us about that.
0: So there's not, so, yes. So when there was a child abduction, right, like it was an all-hands call. Like if you worked white collar, you were going out to help. If you worked violent crime, you were going out to help. Um when with this creation of the CART team, it put those 60 agents and gave them the training that they were the primary I mean obviously the division itself, the FBI division would send personnel. Um and, and I'll be honest with you, when when the team was first started up, you know, we we had to sell ourselves to within our own organization that you know FBI is territorial about cases like we're not here for glory we're just here to help you find this kid you know what i mean check your egos at the door everyone's going to play in the same team in the sandbox together and we're going to get we're going to get to the bottom of this so initially when you talk about creating a team we had we had to sell the team to ourselves internally and then when you go out and you try and preach that message to law enforcement you have to sell it to them, too. And I think the early case examples allowed us the successes that we had with law enforcement and within the FBI divisions, you know, it it didn't cost the division any money, we were self a self funded unit, you know, we had our own budget, Um, travel expenses were not an issue hotel lodging, food, none of that was an issue, we, we had our own package. And that coupled with the successes that we had early on helped us to to create this and it it hasn't evolved since then right now there's two bau uh, ssa's that go out the cart team investigators go out we have our own intelligence analysts that deploy with us now Um, we get a cast member a cellular analysis survey team uh, member that goes out with us so we are a self-sufficient unit right now that can be deployed anywhere, and we don't have to take the resources up of the actual FBI field office. We do it all all in house within our little group. So it, it it has evolved and and has come along, and I'm and I'm sure it's evolved since I retired five years ago. It's it's even gotten better, but I think it's uh, the progression of the team and the addition. Of the analyst uh just makes it makes it a, a complete total package when they get deployed
2: i remember the early days of Cascu in the mid 90s that congress was very much on board money and budget was never a problem and i'm sure it's not today i appreciate how you explained it's in-house budgetary matters are contained therein but uh congress they're not stupid they they definitely want kids to be safe and recovered if they are kidnapped but they also know those good you know uh, when you're uh, running for re-election too. So, uh, and and whatever it takes, but they were putting a lot of money into the early days of Casque. I know they fund the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Those folks get called out too sometimes, right? They can be, there are some retired folks there, FBI. There are some full-time folks there. Explain a little bit what NCMEC does.
0: So NCMEC will send uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They will send uh, uh, investigators, to, not that they're they're not sworn law enforcement, but they're uh, retired law enforcement. They work these types of cases and they, they, sh- they can show up and they have tremendous resources as well. Uh, whether you need cell phones or uh, flashlights or whatever, they, they, they're an additional resource that that shows up and, and can lend assistance during these types of investigations. Mick. Um, you know, we get once once the child is reported to, law enforcement puts the kid, uh, you know, say there's a re- report of a, a missing abducted child. Law enforcement initially responds, gets the information. They enter that inf- information into the national database, NCIC, the National Crime Information Center. Once that gets entered into NCIC, there's a flag on there because it's a missing tender age under the age of just say twelve. Um, Nick Mick gets an automatic notification. Once they get that notification, they automatically contact the local FBI office. And nine times out of ten the, the local FBI office has already been made aware and is working with law enforcement, but it's just another another avenue or another catch to make sure that uh, nothing falls b- between the cracks, and that someone's not notified um, of a missing case of a missing child, so you can uh, actually start the investigation. You don't want those things to fall through the cracks. And there's no, you know, like the the big myth, the old time myth, is you got to wait 24 hours or 48 hours they've been gone. No, that that has been proven, and it's not. Uh, if a kid goes missing, you report them missing as soon as possible. And the FBI has a statistic that for kids that are abducted and murdered, uh, 74 percent of the kids that are abducted and murdered are abducted and murdered within three hours. So the clock starts, and you're you know you're behind the eight ball, right? And time time is so precious, and, and for that for that statistic alone right we always say on the team like time is the only commodity you can never regain and it, and it's our enemy in these types of cases but we you know you got to do what you got to do
1: when you hit the ground in one of these instances what what's going on tune our listeners into what's happening put us put us inside one of these things let us know what's going on what are you doing yeah,
0: right so it's it's a very fast-paced environment right um there'll be a team leader that is in charge of the, the agents and analysts that respond to this situation and they work with the FBI field, local field office. Um, But ultimately it's their responsibility to make sure, you know, the T's are crossed and I's are dotted. All right. So you get, uh, you get there. And the first thing that we always wanted to do is give me a timeline. I need a timeline, you know, who was the last person that saw this kid alive and when? And I want it to not be the parent or the caregiver, okay? Take the information from the reporting party, which is probably gonna be the parent or the caregiver, but then we need to verify that that, is, that information is accurate because of that false allegation stuff I was talking about earlier, right? So the number one thing when we get there is I wanna see a timeline. You know, how long has the kid been missing? who's reporting them missing, and what have you done? Have you done a neighborhood canvas? Yeah, we knocked on the door. Okay, well, I need to see a list, okay? I wanna pull up a map and I'm gonna have specific addresses and I need to know that law enforcement went to that address and you're gonna fill out this form and the officer's name or agent's name is gonna be on it and you're gonna own it, right? You're gonna get in the house and people cooperate, they're not gonna not let you in the house. Now, uh, you're saying, you're looking for a, a missing child, right?
2: Unless, unless, <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, uh, uh, unless, unless you're you're the bad guy, and then that is a clue, right? So then we do other things to to mitigate that. Um, but the first thing we're doing a timeline, and we're canvassing the neighborhood, right? So then we're also going to put people on uh, a video review everyone or not everyone but a lot of houses have like ring doorbell cameras uh, we're gonna we're gonna canvas the local agencies if they have license plate readers uh, police cars in their neighbor in, in the area what tags showed up on there we're gonna canvas the video of uh, if there's traffic cameras if there's uh, like fast food restaurants or gas stations or anything like that wherever there's camera coverage And then we're gonna have our CAS guys start doing cellular analysis, um, surveys of the different uh, towers that are in the nearby area. And we'll do preservation letters to preserve that data should we need it later on down the road for some type of prosecution uh, once we identify the offender to actually put him in the area uh, at the time of the offense. So there's a lot of moving parts. And then, you know, you're briefing out the executives of what's going on. You're going to be liaisoning with uh, a commander of the local or state police agency that you're working with. Um, there's just a lot, a lot of moving parts. And then all that information comes back to the command post and it gets uh, put in the system. And then based upon that, we're, we're developing additional leads. We're working with the media relations, like the public information officer. Uh, you know, one of the main things that we tell uh, law enforcement is let's just have one. doesn't have to be the FBI phone number, but just one point of contact, right? If you look around and you see flyers, you're going to see uh, call so-and-so sheriff's office. And then below that, uh, or call the FBI or call Nick Mick we just need one point of contact, right? That's a centralized location where we can monitor the information that comes in. We can generate leads based upon that information and it can be tracked. So there's a whole tracking mechanism that we use uh, in these type of cases because the information does come in and it's fast and it's furious and you don't wanna miss anything. What might seem like a a non-significant event to somebody just calling in something could be significant because they don't know the other end of the puzzle, right? Like we got all these other pieces and we're just waiting for that one. And this person's got the nugget and they don't even know they have the nugget. So they come in, that information comes in. Uh, we do we do roadblock canvases, you know, um, at the particular time of the disappearance of the kid. If it's a late night disappearance, you know, you're going to catch... If you do a roadblock, you may catch the uh, delivery driver who's delivering donuts at four o'clock in the morning uh, who, oh, yeah, I saw a blue. Well, what would you see? Not, and that, that's the other thing that we taught law enforcement is you don't ask them, did you see anything suspicious? Right. Because you're narrowing it down to what they could potentially have observed. So you ask the more broad question, what did you see? Because if you ask what's suspicious, well, what's suspicious to Fitz is different than what's suspicious to Ray, which is different from me. So if you just ask the broad question of what did you see instead of anything suspicious, you get better results.
2: I think what's important too, and let me just follow up on Kevin's point, because I was was at a few of these, uh, I helped coordinate a few of these things. It's not just the roadblock, maybe the night after, but you do it if it happens on midnight on a Tuesday, a kid goes missing. The following Tuesday at midnight, thinking people have patterns and schedules in their life, you do it then. Maybe do it a few Tuesday nights in a row. Maybe even up to a month. Hopefully you'll get lucky. And, yes, yeah, some leads have developed that way. So it's not just the very next night or the next day, whatever, but you try to time it out on a uh, on, on the same day of the week at the same time.
0: You're absolutely right, Fitz. Spot
1: on. you're You're doing a continuous assessment. With the information coming in, it's changing. Like you said – it's changing very, very quickly because of the information that comes in. But here's a question. I don't know if you can answer this. When you look at all of the incidents that you've been out in, and Fitz, you've been out in some of these. I've been out in very few, not like both of you two. But what have you seen? Now, we're not talking about parental abductions, but what are the motivations that you've seen for non-parental
0: abductions? So I think, from my perspective, I think the age of the victim goes to reflect the characteristics of the offender uh, and sex. And, and Fitz, please join in because you you were BAU. Um, the example I gave of the woman abducting the infant because she was trying to save a re- relationship, that in that particular case and in, in, in those types of cases, the offender is not there to sexually abuse or murder the baby, they're doing it for some maternal instinct to keep a relationship alive that they can't have a kid. But as I've seen, as the age of the victim goes up, the characteristics of the offender change, and it can go to a male, and that's when the the sexual component of these abductions uh, takes place, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, it does, and there are sort of parameters that the, we in the BAU would look at, and and quite frankly, I didn't work as many of these child abduction cases by the time I got to the BAU between the child abduction serial killer unit, and then when we basically broke into our own separate expertise, I went with kind of language and adult profiling, where other folks went with uh, the child abductions. But uh, there, uh, yeah, stranger uh, stranger abductions are really rare. The rarest of the rare is uh, profit oriented kidnapping. And that's why the John Benet Ramsey case, we're not going to get into that here. But, you know, that's so rare that someone's actually asking, you know, is the Lindbergh baby, Frank Sinatra Jr., Patty Hearst for kind of ideological reasons, the Exxon um, um, uh, vice vice president up in the New York division? Uh, and that was, he was an adult, but they're so few and far between. So you can almost rule those out as being if once a decade that happens, that's. You know that's even maybe a stretch but uh but the other child abduction that you are talking about it has it's generally it's mostly over sex meaning the the usually a male offender will desire sex with the female victim or the or the male victim and again age factors kick in and do the survivability rate and all of those um but uh and there's all those those rare cases that we talked about earlier where the mother just wants their own child they're not quite as common as the other factors involved um, that we've already discussed, but uh, but they're all out there. So yeah, it's it's mostly sex oriented on the part of a male offender looking to take one of these kids and uh, and and have their way with them. And usually, uh, if not recovered within you know twenty four hours or so, um, again depending on the age of the kid, uh, it can be problematic. Although that trend burst a little bit in the last ten years. When these um, kidnapped victims—I forget her name—out of uh, Utah, a blonde girl was taken by like some homeless guy. Catherine Smart. Yes, thank you. And uh, you know, I never forget looking at the parents, and that's—we were sent videos back in the day, and I would go over and help uh, the BAU three guys because I'm the language person. And we watched some media interviews of the parents in that case. I also remember the Susan Smith case. Remember that woman I, in one of the Carolinas? In North Carolina. She, her boyfriend didn't want kids, so she tied her to, well, seatbelted her two little kids in a car, pushed them in a lake. The car gets submerged. She comes back, oh, my God, my car, uh, my kids were kidnapped, and uh, a black guy did it, you know, and within about three or four days. I remember watching video of her saying, man, something's not right with her. Then a number of years later, there's, uh, um, uh, what was her name? Smart, the Utah girl, uh, her parents. And I said, boy, if these guys are lying, if they're involved in the death of their kid or their kid being missing, they're some of the best I've ever seen. And I basically said, no indicators of deception with them. This is a stranger abduction. And of course it wasn't for money or profit. We found out later what happened. And that young girl, I think a year later, she like shows up and she breaks free from this group and she some other person picks her up and and she went back with her family and now she's an advocate for um for uh for kidnapped children missing children any any kids involved with domestic abuse so good for her doing the work that she does so um uh yeah so it's it, it it there's all kinds of victims let me also give let me give a perspective from a parent um, uh, I've told this story on a on a several other podcasts, and it's in my third book. And I'll do a truncated version. We had a woman come to us that her father was a serial killer, and uh, she was been estranged from him for years. We started working the case. She went undercover to see her. It was her father, but we had her wired up. We had a limo wired up. We took him for rides. Long story short, she remembers a young boy down in the basement and, and watching her father abuse this boy, and it turns out. Um, right around the time she was reporting this, a little boy named Douglas Legg, L-E-G-G, this is in the Albany area of New York State, uh, went missing about 1971 at one of the biggest state forests in the area. So I'm involved with a New York State trooper 20 years later working this case of the woman who thinks her father's the serial killer also may have killed and abducted this little boy because she has memories of a little boy in the basement being tortured i'm telling all this as a preface to the state trooper and i uh bob LaFountain's his name he's now retired uh we went to interview the doug uh doug leg's parents in 1992. in my entire career this is the toughest interview i ever did because the kid was still missing they never found him they were at a family barbecue like 100 people there He he's walking with some older relatives he's a uh, seven years old I've, I got the wrong pants on. I'm gonna go change my pants. He goes back to the woods. No one ever sees him again. The most, the largest manhunt, if you will, or child hunt in New York State history. They dove every lake within ten miles. Anyway, now we have a suspect in this father. I go back to the parents with the, the state trooper, and we interview them. And they bring us in the door. They have their whole dining room. It's a nice size house they had with. With uh, reports, three ring binders, maps on the wall, they were prepared for us to come. We represented to them a glimmer of hope that we could somehow give them an answer to their missing to, to what happened to their missing child. and they were they have one special three ring binder. oh so these are the ones from psychics. Oh, so psychics are calling you. Yeah, we pay a few of them because they seem really good. Okay. And the last psychic we work with claims he's now, you know, 27 years old living on a commune with a bunch of old hippies in Northern California. So we sp- were paying an investigator to go out there. And what do you tell these parents not to do it? Uh, and we can, we said, we have no guarantees here. We're looking into this case. We're trying to figure out what happened. And they were so appreciative. And um, the long story short of this is the father was not the killer that we thought he was. He was sexually abusing his daughter when she was young. But some other people came about and they said they saw a child skeleton in those same woods 20 um, some years ago. And if nothing else in that case, we, we, these parents got some kind of closure. Their son died, probably of natural causes, no indication he was kidnapped. So kind of a long story. It's not a child abduction per se, but a missing child. But it could be missing child as a result of a criminal offense and these are what the parents have to live with. 20 years later, I mean, 20 days later, 40 years later, it, it was just hell for them. They were polite, friendly, but they hugged us. We represented FBI, state, New York State Police working together, and it was some representation of them of what could possibly give them an answer to their missing child. So, we're all dads here. I think Kevin, you too. Yep. And I'm sure when our kids were little, amusement park, the beach you know, a department store, even two or three minutes your kids go out of your sight. There's a there's a part of your heart that's just as beating. We're tough FBI law enforcement evil, but my kids now missing. You know of the bad people out there, the evil that you know lurks among us. And then in every case, of course, I think here we eventually find the kids and they're fine. Nothing went wrong at all. But boy, uh it's a scary feeling. Imagine having that feeling for 20 years as I sat down with these parents of Doug Leg. So Kind of a long story there, but uh, the parents—there are parents who will lie, uh, like that Susan Smith I talked about earlier. Parents very much legit are victims. The smart parents uh, from Utah, and then these the the leg parents, even twenty years later, just the the sincerity and the 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 vacuum in their heart from uh, from having this missing son. So it's a very difficult situation, and i'm glad the fbi they came up with a few different teams the evidence response team in the 90s of course hostage rescue team the computer team what's that crt i forget yeah cart,
1: the, cart not team. to be confused yeah. with this cart, right right that beef with, with this cart, yeah
2: and uh there was uh of course uh w you know weapons of mass destruction teams every division had someone with an expertise in that so it was really great in the 90s under louis free putting a lot of these special um you know units together you know even within the division so Kevin, thanks for you know you and your colleagues all you've done there. and I was glad to be even indirect, you know a part of some of these investigations over the years.
0: And, and Fitz, I just want to highlight what something you had said uh, on some of our deployments, it's not it, it ends up not being a criminal matter. Um, it's a mysterious disappearance. the kid is missing, and we find we've had multiple uh, children fall down like abandoned septic wells. That end up being accidental deaths. Um, kids are gravitated towards water. We've had multiple uh, kids drown. Um, so when we go when we go out, you know, we're looking for a missing kid. But sometimes it's not a criminal matter. It's not a criminal offense, and it's just an accidental death that that came upon a, a, a little kid way too soon, falling down a well and. You know, I just wanted to bring that out, too, because you, you had just mentioned that.
2: And one of the advices, there was a case in New Jersey of a missing kid, I think, again, in the 90s. It's when I remember these things. Um, the kid went missing for two or three days, all kinds of police involved, maybe FBI. And um, the kid was in the trunk of a car, nothing criminal. And that's before they had the emergency pins
0: you could pull. That was a standard That was trunk, in Kansas. Uh, okay. It, it was three kids, three kids in the trunk of playing and they, okay. uh, the, the, uh, the trunk fell down on them. It was a summertime and yeah, all, all of them passed away. Yeah.
2: And I've, and ever since then, every case I've ever worked and I even I'll email, you know, officers now sometimes don't just do your neighborhood canvas, open the trunk of every single car. Just, you know, it, maybe you'll find nothing, but at least you can say you've done that. And then, uh, Every once in a while, you'll hear that still happening. The kid may already be dead, unfortunately, but at least you'll know where he or she is at that point.
0: Hey, Ray, I would like to just talk one one more thing real quick, if I can, uh, just, just talking about uh, – so we talked about the team and how we respond, and a large uh, component of what we did was we provided training to uh, state, local, tribal uh, law enforcement officers, and uh, that – we developed um which it takes a ton of time but you know you you do training in a classroom for three days and it's a four-day training that we put on and it's uh like monday tuesday wednesday is in in class so what we do is we train these cops and we'll, we'll bring 75 uh detectives in and we'll put them through what we what we would do from neighborhood canvas to cell phone stuff to, uh, uh, you know, running down video. And then the last day is a full blown exercise, like a, like a, like a FTX. And what we have a scripted scenario, uh, you know, it'll start up, we'll give them a little bit of, of information. Hey, a call just came in. Uh, there's a missing kid at one, two, three main street. So then they, they literally, like four of them, will go to 123 Main Street. We have actors uh, play specific roles that have specific scripts uh, of all the stuff that we've seen on our deployments from the guy who is the creepy guy in the neighborhood that nobody likes. And then they start to gravitate towards that guy. It's that red herring, right? Every one of these cases has a red herring of something that's shiny that people look to but really has nothing to do with the case but it spends you spend a lot of your resources and time chasing down that that red herring so it's it ends up being a full day exercise they use everything that we've taught them in class the previous three days and if they do everything correctly they recover the child like obviously we we use We'll have one of the agents will have one of their kids be the play the victim. Like, well, well, he'll ride a bicycle and he'll ditch his bicycle in uh, a baseball field at a local elementary school. So they go to one, two, three Main Street. Yeah, my kid uh, didn't come home from school today. Well, where's your kid go to school? Goes to uh, Unionville Elementary School over here. So then they go to Unionville Elementary School and they find a bike. You know, it's the kid's bike. So now they're like, all right, yeah, we got a bike here. We do, you know, something's not adding up. And there's a receipt for uh, a McDonald's. And then detect, you know, you're going to take that. Then you're going to have to go to that local McDonald's, which is, you know, who we worked with. And they provide us video or provide them if they ask for it. And it gives us a, a small description of the suspect vehicle. And, you know, then they have to do all the other investigative steps that, that they've learned throughout the week. Um, and it's the most realistic, like abduction training you can do without literally abducting a kid. You know what I mean? So it's it's as real as it can get, and uh, it, it's very well received.
1: That's that is uh, they say it's that's the best you can do, is having that FTX where it's as realistic as possible, because when you do that, it it uh, it prepares them for things that they may never see. But if they do see them, they're gonna be prepared to handle it. Um, it's, you know, we're, we're getting ready to wrap up here, Kev, but I'm gonna tell you, this has probably been the most informative uh, uh, presentation that Fitz and I have put on. You have left our listeners with some great, great information. Uh, I wouldn't mind having a final thought here and we'll start with you, Kev. If you had to make a recommendation on how parents can better protect their kids, what would you tell them?
0: Communicate and listen. You know, you, ha- you have to talk to your kids. Uh, you may not want to hear what they have to say sometimes, um, but I think communication and, and being a listener, a good listener, even though that can, they can push your limits on that sometimes, um, and being involved in who their friends are, who they're, uh, if they have a cell phone, like that that today, there's other stories I can tell you about that, right? Uh, regarding the cell phones and, and how they hide stuff from your parent. But I, I think that communication, being involved and being a good listener um, help to be a better parent.
2: Yeah, what I used to do with my kids and um, maybe a year or two away from my grandkids doing this is I would role play with them and I would talk to them in advance about that there are bad people out there and they don't always look like, you know, monsters or ogres or gremlins, things like that. They could look very much like a normal quote unquote person. So uh, I would tell them how the people come in and say, oh, I'm looking for a puppy dog. Could you help me? Or, uh, oh, uh, your mom told me to pick you up uh, you know, at school today, I can give you a ride. I'm your mom's friend, you know, whatever. So I would sometimes pull coming home from work, whatever my deal was. And my five or six or seven year old is maybe down the street playing with some friends. And they would know what I'm doing. Uh, hi, little boy. Uh, what's your name? And they knew then don't even give the name. Oh, OK. Well, look, I'm missing a little puppy dog, little white and brown dog. It's His name is, you know, Fido. You know, uh, would you like to get in the car and help me? I don't think so, Mister. <laughs> and they got a little wise afterwards. But even their friends would be alongside of them, and they knew early on: don't be duped. You know the whole ice cream thing. You know things like that. Um, this is before cell phones. Um, but I know there's a whole different way of kids being approached. Then, let I me mean, slightly older kids. So do a little role playing with them, and let you know let the kids know. It Can be like a game, but say, "Hey, you want to get in the car? I'm looking for a dog. No way, sir." come to my house. I need to use the phone. Can I come in the house? Knocking on the door, maybe hoping the parents aren't home. No, no, no. You can't come in the house. I'll call the police. They'll come over and you can make a call with them, whatever. And that's sort of how I taught my kids. And luckily, um, you know, no issues in that regard. So not a bad idea for parents and caregivers out there to have these little role playing scenarios of what not to do uh, for these young kids.
1: I'm going to be very brief on mine. uh, And I echo what Kevin said. Uh, The ability to communicate with your children and to be a good listener. But the other thing that I thought was always, always important is to make sure you're involved with your children and in their lives. Um, Don't just, they're not just a convenience. I've had them, I can check off the box. Know what they're doing, know who they're talking to, especially online. Monitor what they're doing on the internet. That is the Biggest problem, and the problem that it stresses is not just to their laptop or their iPad, it goes to their phone. Those phones today, not like they used to be, the flip phones, they're computers. So not only do you say, I monitor what they're doing on their computer and their iPad, but I really don't pay attention to what they're doing on their phone unless I want to find out who they're talking to. Go into their cachet. Look, look at the sites they're visiting. Uh, be careful. Always be aware of what your kids are doing. The more involved you are in their lives, the more they're going to thank you later on and say, Mom and Dad, thank you for being there. They really, really will because my kids do it today. So with that, Kevin, uh, I want to, Fitz and I want to thank you, uh, for being here. We want to have you back again. Um, there's so much that you have to offer. Um, you were fantastic. Uh, even though Fitz said you probably wouldn't be that good, I told him it was totally different. That's what you were great. That was
2: the other Jim Fitzgerald from Philly Division who said that.
1: <laughs> yeah, there is another Fitz from Philly Division. And and we're I'm kidding. kidding. He's a good yeah, guy. He, we're kidding. No, he's not a good guy. No, I'm just kidding. He is a good guy. He is a good guy. He is a good guy. But hey, listen, uh, again, uh, Kevin, thank you. Uh, Fitz, it's been real. Till next week. This is Cole Red signing out. Thanks, everybody, for listening.